Almighty God, Father, we uh, come before you as your people uh, to worship you, Lord. We desire to worship you rightly. And Lord, we take time um, to scour your word um, that you might have your will with us. Lord, we've um, discussed uh, in Sunday school your providence and um, uh, even portions of um, your model prayer where uh, you stated um, that, your, that we should pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may we be a humble people that we uh, might put aside our um, uh, vain confidence, Lord. May, you, may we be humble enough, Lord, that we would desire your will to be done um, to us and through us, Lord. Um, may we be a, a people that detests sin in our own lives um, as well as in our midst, Lord. May we desire to learn of you. May we desire to um, show your your love uh, to even the world, Lord. May they see the love that we have for each other, Lord, and know um, that we are Christians, Lord. May they know that we are your people. Um, may there be no compromise. Lord, may there, um, may it not just be something they see, Lord, but something that they experience. And above all, Lord, um, the most loving thing uh, that we can do for uh, the lost would to be confront, confront them in their sin, to confront them with the truth of your gospel. And Lord, we ask that um, we would see fruit from those labors, that we would see um, rebels as we once were, uh, converted to you, that you might have um, more and more worshipers, Lord. Um, may we have that many more brothers and sisters, Lord, uh, surrounding us that we may lift our voices in praise to you. Lord, as we um, gather this morning, Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to us. Uh, through your word being preached. And Lord, we thank you again uh, for our church, uh, for our pastor, and um, the work that you accomplish uh, through your church. In Christ's name, amen. All right, and now we uh, return to the Gospel of John the Gospel of John, and I will be reading verses 31 through 47, chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from men, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, 
bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may be saved. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, Him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Amen. What absolute uh, authority our Lord Jesus Christ addresses the people here. And of course, he's talking to the religious leaders. Remember at the beginning of chapter 5, he heals a, a man who was lame for over 30 years. And the Pharisees raise an issue with him. The religious leaders, uh, excuse me, raise an issue with him because he had done this work on the Sabbath. And Jesus then declares that not only did he do do this miracle on the Sabbath, but in every subsequent Sabbath and in every Sabbath that will ever be and on every day and in every hour, he has been working and is working with his father. He and his father are one. He declares his unity with God. He declares, of course, that he is God. And now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to present three witnesses that confirm what he said in verses uh, 16 through 30. These witnesses are going to verify who Jesus is. Remember, he works He does the same works that the Father does, that God does. He is of one will with the Father. There is this bond of love between the Father and the Son so that they know all things together. And not only that, but one day, Jesus will raise the dead and judge them. And now he is providing proof, testimony to to verify what he's saying. Now, why is he doing this? Is, is Jesus' goal just to prove them wrong? Is that what he wants to do? Not at all. I, I want to look, at, look at three places in this context where, where you get an idea. The first is the clearest. In verse 34, listen to what he says. Verse 34, the second half, he says, But I say these things to you that you may be saved. That's why he's doing this. In verse 40, he says, You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. In verse 47, But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus' purpose for bringing these witnesses forward is so that the religious leaders might be saved. What kind of people were the religious leaders, though? Well, look at verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Look at verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. These were men who were trying to kill him. They weren't favorable to Jesus. They weren't, they weren't kind. They weren't anticipating this kind of Messiah. They weren't looking at his works and saying, wait a minute, 
This is a man of God. They weren't listening to his words and saying, oh, what he's saying is in tune with the scriptures. They were hostile. They hated Jesus. They hated what he was saying, and they hated what he was doing, but they couldn't confound him. So they wanted to kill him. And Jesus' response, at least at this point in his ministry, is, let me draw them in with truth now. I've declared who I am. If you notice, there's a shift here. Um, if, you, if you read this section between, Jesus moves from third-person references. Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son does also in like manner. The Father loves the Son. He sort of refers, he, not sort of, but he does refer, refer to himself in the third person. And here he moves away from doing that, and he begins to address them directly. If I bear witness, verse 31, verse 32, I know that the witness which I have Verse 34, yet I do not receive. Verse 34 again, I say these things. Verse 36, I have a greater witness. And so on and so forth through the entire section here. There's a, there's a shift now. Because what Jesus is doing is he is giving testimony. He is providing a witness. Or actually three witnesses. And this is, uh, this, is, this is contrary to the way that we act. If we have, if, if we have a neighbor who is uh, resentful towards us, who acts disrespectfully, who knows that we're Christians and is unwilling to hear, or even a family member, what do we do? We just stop talking to them about those things. We don't bring it up anymore. Because, you know, for whatever reason, it might be disdain and hatred for the person, or it just might be that we don't want the hassle anymore of having to deal with those kinds of conversations. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus pursues these men. And here you see the heart of Christ even for his enemies. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And he never veers from his mission. That's what he came to do. So whenever he is given an audience, he wants to draw them in to believe in him. You think of the long-suffering and compassion of Christ. He shows patience in spite of the difficulties that he's facing with the Jewish leaders. They're giving him a hard time because he healed a crippled man on the Sabbath. He shows concern for the Jewish leaders, for the blindness and for their their bondage to the glory of man. That's what their issue is. They're concerned with the glory of men. They want the praise of men. Look at verse 44. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? They love attaboys. Attaboy, good job. Their entire religious system is based on it. Yet Jesus shows compassion towards them towards his own enemies who are dead in trespasses and sins. He gives them an opportunity to believe. He presents evidence that they might believe. And, and he does this. He doesn't present a, a witness that they can't verify. He wants to give them things that they actually believe. That's what he does in this setting. 
He doesn't give them the name of an, obsc- of an obscure prophet. He says, John. They had flocked to hear him. They knew who John was. He doesn't reveal to them some, some unknown uh, uh, work that the Messiah would do. What he presents to them as testimony was in their scriptures, scripture, scriptures that they had studied and known. And not only does he do that, but he doesn't refer them to different scriptures, to some different document that they would have no conception of. He, he turns them to their Bible and specifically to the books of Moses that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees together accepted the testimony of the books of Moses. He is this way, even today, with all manner of sinners, even with all of us. And this is what confounds the world. You see, uh, you talk to people about the truth of Christianity. You talk to people about Christ as the only Savior of the world. And you know, they'll raise silly objections like, oh, there are so many errors in the Bible. To give me 50, right? And they can't give you one. They'll say things like, uh, the, the Bible has been, it, you know, it has been translated in so many different ways, and they, they don't even understand basic concepts of, of translating one language into another. All of it is a farce. Yet God in His grace and kindness has given us this book filled with truth. Not only this book, but the evidence that he has worked throughout history in his own people. And he continues to provide these things. And this confounds the world. Particularly when men, women, and children who did not believe, and when men, women, and children who were hostile to Christ repent and believe. The world doesn't get it. Why does this confound the world? Because once people believe in Jesus, he transforms them. Well, the, the work of God in the life of a sinner is described as a conversion or a, another way, sanctification. Bit by bit, sometimes you can't even see the transformation right away. It, it's gradual. It takes time. And kind of like a stream cutting through a terrain. Other times it's really sudden. It's like a burst of light, and the person is conformed and transformed. Nonetheless, everyone who follows the Savior is transformed and conformed to His image. And they believe what He says. They trust in His Word, and they have full confidence in what He says, and the world cannot understand that. Because the work of conversion is a supernatural work. Yet what Jesus does here is with these men who were so hard-hearted, who were set against him, he now presents this truth, the truth of who he is. In verses 31 through 40, you have testimony that affirms the claims of Christ. And in verses 41 through 47, you have accusation for their denial of his claims. So a testimony and then accusations. He, he gives them a testimony and then he accuses them for their lack of belief. In our, in our, um, we're so unlike Christ. I, I'm not talking here, you know, about uh, a while ago, you know, you had the wristbands, what would Jesus do? I'm not necessarily talking about that kind of theology. But, but the kind of boldness that Jesus exemplifies when it comes to the truth of who he is, we, we are so weak and complacent in this kind of courage that we're really apathetic. There, there is such a, a, a desire for people to like us that we are unwilling to share truths with them that will save their soul. Because we just want people to like us. But that's not the way that Jesus is. And that's not the way he calls us to be. 
He gives them testimony, and then he accuses them because of their lack of belief. Now first, verses 31 through 32, he acknowledges the need for his testimony to be confirmed. He did, now, acknowledging the need doesn't mean that he has to give it. He is God. He can do whatever he wants. But he understands the weakness of the people he's talking to. Um, we can preach the gospel until we're, we're blue in the face and our voice is hoarse and we just have no more words. But if that is not accompanied with a, a testimony, and I don't mean a story of, of how we got converted, but a testimony of the truth of that gospel, it's worthless. There has to accompany my, uh, that work accomplished in my life. It has, to, it has to come home. It has to be, there has to be a reality so that I'm not speaking to people about a figment of my imagination, just about Christian truths. So Jesus shifts now. And what he's doing is exactly what Proverbs 27, uh, 2 says. Let another man praise you. That's what he's going to do. And it's his father. And his father has gives three witnesses. His father has testified about him in three particular ways. And this, of course, is, is in line with Deuteronomy 19.15, which the Jewish leaders would have known. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses, what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying is being established that he is the Messiah. You have to remember that with the Jewish people, there was a, there was a messianic fever or fervor or both where there were messiahs popping up all the time. A guy would, I'm the messiah, and he would start preaching revolution or whatever it might be, and the, you know, they'd get killed, squashed or somehow. We have them even today, people who do that. Do you guys remember the guy in Miami, Florida, Jose Luis de Jesus? who said that he was the incarnation and coming of Jesus Christ. He died in uh, 2013, and now he's in hell <laughs> for his blasphemies. Uh, but people do it all the time, and they did it back then also. So Jesus provides this witness. Now look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness. Now, who is this? Who is the one who bears witness? Is it John? Because John is close to the context there. Well, really, in light of verse, um, look at verse 34. Yet that, I do not receive testimony from men. And I'll look at verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me testified of, excuse me, uh, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. John isn't the witness he's referring to here in the first place. The, the witness really is, is the Father. He's drawing attention to the Father's testimony about him. So the question is then, how has God the Father testified of his Son? How has he done this? Well, first he's done this through John, through John the Baptist through the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. Look at verse 33. You have sent to John. Right? Do, you, do you remember from chapter 1 of this gospel? The religious leaders, they, 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 they come to John in John chapter 1 and verse 19. Oh, verse, uh, yeah, verse 19. John chapter 119, they send a delegation. Now, this is the testimony of John. This is what we're talking about, testimony. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? They probably sent priests and Levites because he is of a priestly lineage. Remember, his father, Zechariah, was, was a priest. So who are you? And here's his confession. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. 
And when they really try to pin him down, verse 22, verse 23, what does he say to them? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Who am I? I am the long-anticipated prophet who would prepare the way of the Lord. Then the Pharisees come. So the priests come, now the Pharisees come. Verse 25, and they ask, Why do you baptize if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? He answered, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to lose. And then as he sees Jesus coming, the next day, in verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, because he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. God revealed to John that he would preach in preparation for the coming and the reception of the Messiah. And this was all of John's ministry. It was to prepare for the coming of Christ, that men might believe in the Lord Jesus. And there was something about John's person, and there was something about John's preaching that drew the Pharisees. Listen to the way that Jesus describes it in verse 35. He says, he was, a, he was the burning and the shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. They didn't receive his testimony really. But there was something about his person and there was something about his preaching that drew them in. Religion is appealing People like religion. People like a religious message, a message about doctrine and truth. And then if you add that to to a guy like uh, John the Baptist, where he had this just huge, whether we like it or not, it's true, he just had a huge personality, right? He's dressed like a wild man. He eats honey and bugs, (laughs) People were just drawn to him. And he's preaching this message of repentance. And it it doesn't matter who the person is. So wild-eyed, crazy liberals who don't even believe in God know that there has to be some kind of repentance. Right? They push it in their liberal agendas. Right? That's, That's what they're saying. You have to repent of driving your car and from your cows farting. Right? Because the world's gonna be destroyed. Right? So they preach a message of repentance also. So when, uh, uh, so when somebody like John the Baptist comes around and he is preaching a message of repentance, what, what are those people going to do? Are they going to, oh yeah, we, we know there has to be some kind of change. So they're drawn to him. They, they want to come and see what's going on. But that only lasts so long. People who are interested in religion will come and they'll listen, they'll tune in for a little while, but then they'll turn away. When those hard truths start to sink in and they realize, wait a minute, I think he's talking about me. He's not talking about like a bunch of other people. This guy's talking about me. He's saying these things to me. Oh, yeah, I, I, you know, that's not for me. It's too radical. That's, that's too crazy. Who lives like that anyways? That can't be true. And that's exactly what they did to John. When the truths John was declaring had to be put into practice, they didn't want any more of it. Once they understood that what he was saying, once they understood what he was saying and how it applied to them, they had no desire to listen to John anymore. We do not want to hear this man anymore. 
Yet the fact of the matter is God promised these, the Jewish people that he would send John to preach to them. It was in their Bibles. And, and remember, the, the life of the Jewish people, at least at that period in history, was so bound up with the Scriptures that it was who they, this is who they were. They were people of the Scriptures. And their religious leaders were just schooled in the Scripture. And so, for example, during the intertestamental period, during the period between the New Testament, there were Jewish people were writing. They weren't writing Scripture. And they were writing about Elijah. And you know what they called Elijah? The burning and the shining lamp. They said that his word was like a torch when he preached. They knew that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah. You see, Jesus isn't presenting just obscure evidence or evidence that had no application. He's, he's bringing it very close. He's pressing it upon their minds and upon their hearts. For example, li- listen to the words of Psalm 132. In Psalm 132 here, this is a psalm that is it's confirming the Davidic promises. It's, it's a psalm that declares the promises that the people were anticipating with regards to the Messiah. So in Psalm 132, we read these words, beginning at verse 13. Psalm 132, 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow, his his government, his authority, his kingdom. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. And what was John? John was a lamp. He was burning and shining bright. His preaching, the doctrines that he taught, were completely centered around the person of Christ. He, he was a shining lamp in the sense, not that he was an actual lamp, right? It's not that literal. But that he was, he, he was the instrument that was used to shine the bright light of the coming of the Messiah. This is, ex- if, you, if you want to see more of this, you just read Luke chapter 1, and you'll hear Zechariah's testimony about his own son. This is what he says, and it's all bound up with the promises to Abraham, the promises to David. And the Jewish leaders knew this. They knew these things were so. In his preaching and in his teaching, John the Baptist was fulfilling the Old Testament. And the Jewish leaders knew this. And Jesus is saying this to them because he wants them to be saved. And this is the way that we have to interact with people who don't believe the gospel. Listen, you know your friends and families better than I do. You know the things that you need to talk to them about. I don't know all the specifics. But not only that, when we're talking to any person, we we know what to say to them. You know why? Because we were once dead in trespasses and sins. We know we, we need us. We have been lost and are found. We know that it was our sins, whatever they might be, that were keeping us from God, that, that placed us under eternal judgment and damnation, and that apart from Christ, we would be damned forever. So this is Jesus' approach. The next thing that he presents to them are his works. Look at verse 36. So the first is the testimony of John the Baptist that they all knew and were anticipating. Next, 
Look at verse 36. Verse 36, John chapter 5, verse 36. He says to them, But I have a greater witness than John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. His works bear witness. And they could not deny that Jesus did everything that he did. Look at chapter 7, verse 31. This is a little later. And this, of course, the religious leaders now, they sought to take him, but no one could lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? They all knew the signs that he was doing. It, it, was, it was clear that the, these weren't fabricated miracles. He, this is, he's not David Blaine. Right? He's a magician. That, 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 that's not Jesus. Jesus wasn't a huckster. He wasn't doing tricks. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 40. And he went away, Jesus, Jesus went away again beyond the Jordan, 10 verse 40, to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. You see, John was preaching. Everything John said about Jesus was true. John performed not a one miracle. And Jesus is performing miracles all the time. Remember when uh, John is in prison in Matthew chapter 4 and he sends a delegation to, to ask Jesus, are you the coming one? Which means, are you the Messiah? And what he says, he says, go tell John that the lame walk, the blind see, the death here and good news is preached to the poor. Why does he say that? Well, that's from Isaiah. And that was a prophecy of the Messiah. That was a promise of the things that the Messiah would do. So what Jesus is saying to John in turn by quoting Scripture is, yes, I'm the Messiah. That's who I am. And the people were anticipating. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and do exactly what Jesus was doing perform these miracles. That's why they had come. Remember, at one point in the gospel, they come and try to make him their king. Look at 11, 47. 11, 47. So you have this testimony from a variety of groups of people, people around the temple, people who had John had been preaching to. They're all confessing these things. Now look at chapter 11, verse 47. <clears throat> Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. Well, worship him, believe that he's the Messiah, repent of your sins. I mean, that's just a few things you could do. If we leave him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> that's the point. That should have been the point. That's what they should have been doing. They should have been directing people to the Messiah because of of the things he was doing and because of the testimony of John. When they showed up to be baptized by John and John called them a brood of vipers, they should have said, yes, we are, and gotten baptized and come out of the water and then they should have gathered everyone who was following them and brought them to hear John preached. And then after John was done preaching and Jesus comes on the scene, they should have led all those people to worship Christ. And for those of us who are here who have Bibles in our hands, that's exactly what we should be doing. If, if, if you're sitting in here today and you've got a Bible in your hand and you, uh, and you waste your time and fill your life with all manner of other things and very rarely even take the time to instruct even people who are just in the church with you. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you just called somebody for lunch, had them over for dinner, 
prayed with them, asked them how they were doing, how's your Bible reading, how's your Bible study, how things with your wife, aunt, kids, cats, uh, you know, how's life, how can I pray for you, what, what, what can I, how can I minister to you? This is the way that we draw people to Christ, and that's what the religious leaders should have been doing. When they see, this is my point in the application, when you see who Jesus is, what ought you to do? Bring people to him. We do this by way of our ministry, but again, he presents evidence. He presents evidence that confirms that he is the Messiah, John the Baptist. Not only John the Baptist, but also the works that he was doing. His very own works were confirmation of who he was. Now, look at the next step he takes with them in John chapter 5. Verse 37 through 40. And the Father himself who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. This is, this is, a, um, this is a very context-specific um, statement by Jesus. He's not saying that the Jewish people never heard the voice of God because they did on Mount Sinai. And you remember what they told Moses? Tell him to stop speaking. We can't hear his voice. It's too terrifying. Moses, you talk to us. He's specifically speaking to the Jews of his own day. This is, these are the post-exilic Jews. There's a 400 years of silence Right? And that's what the Jewish people call that period of time, basically from the end of the book of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, as they call that period the period of silence, or the 400 years of silence, because there was no prophet among the people. They were not hearing the voice of, of God. He was not declaring his truths to them. And then John arises, and do they hear? No, they don't hear. They don't want anything to do with what John is saying, ultimately. They see the works of Christ, and do, do they think to themselves, oh, this is the Messiah. He's doing the signs that were promised. The forerunner is saying, this is the Messiah. This is him. Let's believe in him. But they do not believe. So what he's saying to them specifically is that you don't have an intimate knowledge of who God is. But now look at this. It almost doesn't make sense what he says here. He says, you have neither heard his voice nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you. That seems, what are you saying? Right? You've never heard him, you've never seen him, but a contrast there. Because if you hadn't heard him, like those Jews did at Mount Sinai, and you hadn't seen his form, which no man can see God and live, but you had his word abiding in you, you would know Jesus was the Messiah. That's why he says, but you don't have his word abiding in you. Why? Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. The reason you don't believe in Jesus is because the word of God does not abide in you. What he means by that, it, it has not taken root in your heart and in your mind. There is no connection between you and God because you have completely, totally, and utterly rejected his word. You don't have God's word in you, so you don't believe. This is the reason why so many people, can, can, they can go to church and don't get it. The Word of God has not taken root in their heart. He's, he, now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to start making some very serious claims about them. They don't have the Word of God in them. Verses 37 through 38. 
because they don't believe in him. If they had his word, they would believe. What, what does that mean? Look, listen to the way that it's put in James. In the book of James, and I'll give, you, I'll give you the chapter when I find it, because I just thought of this passage. In the book of James, In the book of James, uh, look at First Peter, First Peter one. It's the next book after James. And verse 22, James makes a similar statement. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, it says this. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the, of, of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The word of God itself is what the spirit of God uses to give life to his people. And the Jewish leaders, those who were charged, are given the responsibility of being stewards of the word and of teaching and declaring the word of God to the people of God. They didn't even have the word abiding in them. It wasn't living and working. And uh, that may sound esoteric, right? What, what, do you, what, what, what does all of that mean, that the word of God is abiding in you? Well, well Peter tells us here, since you have purified your, heart, your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in reliance on the Spirit, believing and obeying the word of God becomes evidence that the word of God is abiding inside of you. So when the Messiah shows up, what would have obe obedience to him would have meant that they believed his words, that they accepted what he was saying. That's different for us today, right? Because Jesus isn't literally showing up to our worship services. But what, what does it look like? practically for the word of God to be in us, to have the word of God in us, it would mean that we would obey from the heart, that there would be a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives individually and corporately. There would be love, gentleness, patience, self-control. The, the way Peter says it, right, is obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love for the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Getting myself excited. Sorry, I'm starting to melt. So th that's what he means by, by not having the word. Jesus, Jesus knows they don't have the word. Of course, he's God. And, and he knows what's going on in their heart, but evidence that they're giving is that they're refusing to obey him. The fruit or the evidence would be submission to his claims, believing what he's saying, and not looking to kill him because he heals a man on the Sabbath. But not only this, listen to what he says in beginning at verse 39. 
You search the scriptures. And now here this could be a command. This can, this can be either a command. He's saying to them, search the scriptures. Look into what the Bible is saying. Or he can be stating what they do. That they are constantly studying the Bible. Either, either one of those. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Either way, let's, I think preferably it's the second. Jesus is saying, you are men who have devoted your life to studying the Bible. Yet the Bible is about me. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it's about Jesus Christ. From, from, from the very beginning, even, even if you look to the fall of the Bible, so you go a little bit after the beginning, and you go to the, to, excuse me, to the fall of man in the Bible, what does God promise? God promises the woman a seed. And he promises that they would have rest from their labors. So Noah's father names him Noah because he thinks he's the promised seed who's going to give humanity rest from their labors. But Noah's not the one. And then Abraham is called and God tells him, I'm going to give you a seed and I'm going to multiply that seed throughout the whole earth. And then he calls David and he says to David, I'm going to give you a seed and I'm going to expand and make his kingdom fill the earth. That, that, that's just one thread that holds together the entire story of the Bible. But then you even have the types and shadows. After Adam and Eve sin, an animal is sacrificed to cover their shamefulness. And then as, as religion in the Old Testament is instructed and guided by God with greater clarity, God gives Moses an entire system of worship that all points to the Messiah, the Day of Atonement and all the various sacrifices, the, the, uh, the, the worship services and the holidays that were in their calendar, all of them pointed forward to the coming of Christ. The entire Old Testament is about Him. Yet why don't they understand it? Because they're unwilling to come to him. You see, for the fallen man, it's, it's a matter of the will. The sinner is unwilling. That's what the problem is. The sinful man is unwilling to come to Christ. It's not that there's not enough evidence. There is. Just pick one aspect the types. Pick, pick one, pick another. You can pick all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. Too many to name. But fallen man is unwilling to come to Christ. And this is something that Jesus declared. In John chapter 8, he says it clearly. You're, you're of your father, the devil. That's why you don't want to come. That's why you're unwilling to submit your will to mine. You don't want to come. You're unwilling and, of course, unable. Now look at verses 41 and follow, 41 through 41 through 42. And here Jesus gets into now the, his accusations. He gives them the witnesses. What were the witnesses? The witnesses were John. The Father gives witnesses. What, what are they? John the Baptist, the miracles of Christ, the Old Testament scriptures, all bearing witness to who Christ is. They reject all of them. And they don't want to come. They are unwilling. And this connects this entire section, 41 through 47, where Jesus now accuses them of their sin. Look at verse 41. I do not receive honor from men. Jesus said, that's not what I'm here for. 
I am not here for the Jewish leaders to praise me. I am not here for the Jewish people to praise me. I am not here for the Gentiles to praise me. That's not why I came. But I know you. That you do not have the love of God in you. For his first accusation to them is, you don't love God. You do not love God. And now, um, why? Because he's just making a, a, a he's, he's saying, I know you, you don't love God. He's just making a statement. So why? How, how do we know? And, and uh, we can think to ourselves, if, uh, if I was there and Jesus was talking to me, what, what is the reason he would give? Because he's, now he's going to give reasons. Verse 43. This is why. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. That, that's the, the, the first part of his reasoning behind making the statement that they don't love God. I've come in God's name and you don't receive me. That's, that's the first. What does he mean that he has come in the name of God? Well, it's very similar to uh, the way that we pray and we say, in Jesus' name. right? What we mean is based upon the merit of Christ, based upon the work of Christ, based upon what everything that Christ has accomplished, Lord, I put my, I offer my prayers to you. What Jesus is saying here, very similar to that, is that he has come as the Father's representative. And when we say, in Jesus' name we pray, we're saying he is a representative before you. Jesus comes to earth as a representative of the Father. And he embodies and captures everything that God wants to reveal to fallen man. You have to remember the statements that Jesus makes repeatedly. He says things like, which one of you can accuse me of sin? His life was an open book. We re when we read these statements in isolation and, and we don't connect them to the entirety of Jesus' ministering, we, we sort of miss the impact and the weight of what he was saying. He dwelt among the people and had never sinned. There was the, they had to bring up false accusers at his trial. So he comes in his father's name declaring his father's message and exemplifying what it means to be a child of God. And they don't receive him. You see, they had no real reason to hate him, but they did. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. That's, that's the second part. The first part of his argument is, I come in my Father's name. I come representing God and you reject me. If somebody comes representing himself, his own name, after his own glory and his own praise, you like that. That's one of the biggest problems we have. The way that Paul had to deal with it in the church of Corinth is, uh, you had some people who were of Paul and some who were of Apollos, and some who were of Peter, and such and such and such and such. We have a similar we we have a similar problem, even with good Bible teachers. You know, so you you'll visit a congregation, and you'll have people who are they are of uh, John MacArthur, right? Or you'll visit a congregation, and they are of R.C. Sproul or of Paul Washer, or of whoever it might be. And they devote themselves really to the teaching of a particular person, and they attach themselves to that person. And when that person falls or fails, they fall and fail. We, we experienced it, and I say we, uh, 
I, I can say I, I experienced it personally in a particular pastor's ministry when he fell. You see, there's this love that's tied to men, to personalities, to being a Pharisee in their time, to being a priest, to being a Sadducees, to, to receiving the kind of praise that was given, not because they worshipped God, but because they were of a particular class of people. And Jesus is saying, because of that, you cannot love me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? And here Jesus Jesus tells them clearly that they can't believe. Because of their sin, because of their desire for the glory of men and to give glory to men, they cannot believe Jesus. It's an, an impediment to faith. The, the lame man, he couldn't get up. He couldn't walk. He couldn't make it down to the water. Why? Because he was physically handicapped. And these men are spiritually handicapped. Therefore, they cannot come to the Savior. They cannot believe in him. They cannot put their faith in Christ. Because they love the glory of men. They're people pleasers. That's their desire. That, that's what they want. What, what you want controls what you believe, is what Jesus is saying. What you want controls what you believe. If you want the glory of man, if you want people to praise you, if you want to be considered a nice fella, that is going to determine, or a good gal, that's going to determine what you believe and what you do and how far you're willing to obey God. You see, the Jews he's talking to here, they had a form of obedience. They had a religious obedience. They had a ritual obedience. They had even a social obedience where they wouldn't mingle with um, non-Jews. But it's because they wanted something. They wanted the praise of man. They wanted to be known as religious people. But they didn't really want to believe God. They wanted to be the lady at work who has the cross necklace and the cross earrings that people think, oh, she's a Christian. You know, they wanted to be the guy who's, you know, who's on the job site who has a Bible on his dashboard. But they don't really love God. Christ. And because of their desire for the praise of man, they can't. What controls you is what you believe. Glory hunger works against faith. It's like oil and water. They don't go together. So he says, you can't believe. In verses 45 through 47. Do not, so I've given you six things here. So far, five, I think I've given you five. His accusations are these. You don't have the word of God in you. Which, which, what he means by that is, I know you've not been transformed by the power of the gospel because you do not live in light of what the Bible is teaching. You don't live in light of what the Bible is teaching. Therefore, verses 39 through 40 you don't want to come to me. Next, you don't want to come to me because you don't love God. Verse 41 through 42. Verse 43, you don't love God, therefore you don't receive me. Verse 44, you don't receive me, therefore you can't believe. And verses 45 through 47, 
Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The final condemnation is going to come for the Jewish people that he's speaking to here is going to come from Moses. It's going to come from the the one, quote-unquote, who they have put their faith in. It it really is ironic. The, The ones that the Jewish authorities trusted in is going to become their judge. And for us, who are sitting here today, over 2,000 years removed from these events that happened, Jesus will be our judge particularly for those of us who are sitting here in a Christian church and say that we believe in his name but deny his power. I'll leave you with, uh, with Jesus' interaction. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That is going to be what Jesus says to many today who say that they're Christians, but his word is not abiding in them. They don't come to him. They don't love God. They don't receive Christ. They can't believe in him. And he will stand as their judge in the end. So uh, let me exhort you then. As Christ does here, because he's presenting these evidences, remember, for what purpose? That they might believe. So the exhortation this morning for all of you is to believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity of gathering together and uh, hearing the voice of the Son of God, hearing him and, and, and seeing how he called men to himself. We ask, Lord, that you would make these things real for us. Help us, Lord, to to believe in these things truly and savingly. In Christ's name we pray, amen.